This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Green Talk Radio. This is your host, Sean Daly. On today's episode of the program, it's the conclusion of my two-part interview with American independent film director Sam Bazo. His latest film is Blue Gold, World Water Wars, an award-winning film based on the groundbreaking book of the same name by Maud Barlow and Tony Clark. If you haven't already listened to part one, I certainly encourage you to do so before listening to this episode. You can find it on the BlueLivingIdeas.com website, the GreenLivingIdeas.com website, PersonalLifeMedia.com, or any of the other sites that syndicate the show. And now we'll pick it back up where I left off with Sam. And the other question I would have along those lines is how bad is it already? And do we have a chance? I mean, it's, you know, some people ask us about climate change. I mean, it's important to have hope, but are we already too far gone with the water based on the population and not being sustainable with the amount of water we have for the number of people we have using it and the way we're managing it? Uh, is there even a way out of this? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I'll use Southern California as an example where I live. It's, and I didn't even know the extent of it here. I mean, it's basically a desert. It should, there's not enough water here to support 3 million people, let alone how many there are. And um, we're getting water from further and further away. In fact, it's like up to 1,500 miles away. Water is being pumped just to get it here. And what you don't realize, and because you don't see it, is that it's draining water from further and further out. So it's not just the water here. It's where we're taking it from. People consume it. goes down the drain into the ocean. And that's where... Um, you know, Canada starts to become afraid. But what I see, the big danger with that is what happens as they need more and more water for L.A., for instance, which has a lot of money, and that's why the problem's so huge. They'll start buying farms out, as they did in the Owens Valley. That's how they solved the Owens Valley Wars. They ended up buying out the farmers. So let's say they start buying the water from the farmers of California. So California's farms will go away. Well, they provide a fourth of the fruit for the country. So then where are we going to get that fruit? We're going to import it from somewhere else. Well, where are they getting the water to grow it? They're taking it from the people. And so, but yet in the news, you won't see it as a water issue right away. You'll just think, oh, fruit died. Oh, you know, this happened. And it's business as usual. LA's getting its water. But you could see, and that's what scares me, is by the time you see that it's water, look how much damage you've done. I think we're really going to see uh, a lot of our agriculture um, drained out. And um, before before we get down to it, and then the question is, yeah, is there enough time? For a lot of people, there probably won't. I just, you know, that, I, I tried to interview someone named uh, I forget his name. He did the book Collapse. Do you know who I'm talking about, Jerry? He did a book Collapse, and he talked about why societies collapse. What's been and always it's been about a massive agricultural failure, just a very sudden one. But when you think of agriculture, water is the primary reason. Uh, crops not being able to grow crops because of erosion. And it starts from draining, using too much water until finally the, the, the agriculture system collapses and then to a point where you can't catch up to it. 
that's the bigger fear. And, you know, again, we hope we can learn from history um, to stop it in time. But the good news is there's always been as much water, uh, you know, the finite amount of water. There really isn't, a you know, water is never going to disappear. It's just a matter of how we manage it. So, you know, what the blue alternative, if we can do water catchments to catch to bring rainwater back and keep it in the ground. And they're doing this in India. There's a guy there named the Rainmaker, the, the guy, Dr. Kravchik. Um, one exciting thing he's doing is Saudi Arabia is considering being the first country to do this on a national basis. And then we're, he's waiting to hear back from that any day, uh, which would be really exciting if you see a country do it on a national basis, say, we're going to build the, we're going to terrace the land to catch uh, water and, and let and replenish our groundwater. Because you can change a desert back into a, a Greenland, you know, uh, by doing that. And that, that is the ultimate solution. So that, yeah, but, you know, when we get to the point where we say, all right, we're finally going to do that, how long it takes, takes 10 years or so to bring the water system back to where it is, who's in trouble in that time, you know, that's going to be very interesting. And that's where you see these conflicts that the film focuses on. Do you see there being water wars, I mean, outright Water wars. I know that in the film there's mentioned some over a certain, uh, I believe it was a, a river in India that there already have been some. There was a kidnapping of a film star related to a water yeah. conflict, which I didn't quite get that whole story. But but do you see? I mean, outright sort of full blown, you know, nation versus nation wars happening in the next say five to ten years. Well, there's definitely been there's definitely been local ones. Now, for a nation to say I'm going to war over your water, I don't know if it'll ever be that clear, but it, the water will, will be a factor in it. Um, more than it's been. Um, in the local example, yeah, in India, that was a direct where two farm areas needed the water from a river. And um, so one was, it was being diverted to one, and the other side uh, kidnapped a film star who lived on the side that was getting the water. Yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting offensive tactic to kidnap a film star. Yes. And then said, you know, give us the water. And um, so that, you know, local conflicts like that, I'm surprised at how many there have been. I only could show a few in the film. But, I mean, they've been throughout history. The Middle East has always had uh, water wars like this regionally. I think um, nationally what we'll see uh, is, you know, our relationship with Canada, for instance. Canada, Brazil, and Russia have all the water. Those are the three major water-rich countries. And... I think when I say, you know, with national wars, I think there'll be political wars, like Cold Wars first, hopefully. Um, but, you know, Canada obviously doesn't want to give us all their water, um, and nor should they. And how that relationship's going to play out is going to be interesting. And there's you're going to see national conflicts. Um, I don't think it'll get to military levels, we hope, but it will get to uh, political battles uh, into into who really has power in this world. And again, in Brazil, one example was the Bush family. Is, it's speculated in the press in uh, uh, Paraguay that they've already bought 100,000 acres of land in Paraguay, which is over the biggest aquifer in the world. Mm -hmm. And we've already, the U.S. has set up a military base in Paraguay that uh, Brazil, for instance, is very uncomfortable with and doesn't know why we're there. So you're seeing military set up uh, around water sources, you know, our, our Canadian relations, there's the free trade agreement that we've made, kind of already made it so we could trade water. But people like Maud, that's what started her fight for 20 years. She's been trying to fight that, um, you know, that, that it's not a commodity that we could trade back and forth. So you're going to see national struggles, 
I don't know if you'll see a global war on the scale of a World War II, but you'll see individual nations struggling for for this. And and who owns it? That's going to become a very important factor in the power. And I think we should look at Russia. I didn't get a lot of time to spend in the film there for budget reasons, but you know, here we have a country that after the Cold War really is was it has not there was no influx of money there. They're not they're a poor country. They're a desperate country. Uh, run mostly by the mafia, and here you have, they have most of the water. So I think that's going to become a very interesting dynamic, uh, for for especially for China and for India and that part of the world that uh, that's going to need that. So yes, I think we're going to see political um, battles over this, uh, and we already are. China's trying to take it from Tibet, um, and it just will continue. Sam, what about people that put forth technology as the end-all, be-all solution? I'm a technologist. Uh, I know its limitations, mm -hmm. though, um, and, and specifically about uh, massive desalination plants using right. renewable energy uh, because there's a fossil fuel usage issue there that can mitigate the, the value of that solution. What about that as being sort of this magic bullet solution? What do you say to that? Yeah, that was interesting because at first everyone was saying that, so I had to really dig into why, why when that's useful, when it's not. And, and desal can become part of the solution. It can help in certain areas at a limited you know, extent, but uh, we can't depend on it. And the reason is, um, well, first, the top technology doesn't exist. We talk about, you know, we would need a renewable way of doing it, and that just doesn't exist yet. Um, if it did, and let's, you know, so that's the first thing is we're you know, we can't depend on something that doesn't exist. And right now with fossil fuels and everything, it, we just don't have the energy to do it mm -hmm. to the scale that we would need to, to solve everything. But uh, let's say we did, and then we build desal plants along the coast, and that's where we get our water. The problem with that is, well, there's a lot of problems. The first is the reason we've got that far is because we've shown we can't manage the water we have to begin with. So why are we going to manage that any better? Um, we're dumping it all into the ocean from overuse, so now if we're getting it from desal and dumping it back in the ocean, it, it's just, as long as we can't manage our water, it doesn't matter where it comes from, we're not going to manage our water and it's gonna, we're going to have a problem. But let's, let's pretend that we got it from there. The question becomes, who owns those? And, and I, it would be a scarier world politically for me if it was all desal because that's a, if you start depending on that plant and you, direct on a, you depend on this entity, directly to survive. The only people that can build those are corporations or governments most likely joint. But suddenly, I mean, that's going to be the time period where they really own us. I mean, and they can just raise prices. They can have uh, political threats, political control. You know, we never want to get to that point. Again, if we can keep the water in the ground, no one's ever going to have, be able to hold water as a control factor over us. You depend on it from a major technology like that, and, and give up the world and say, okay, I'll live in a desert, I'll get all my water from a desal plant, you're really giving up everything and giving up total control to whoever owns those plants. You, you talked about and, the right to water. Issue. Yeah, and the right to water is itself a big issue. And, and there is actually a, for people who aren't aware of it, there is an Article 31, which, uh, to, which would be an amendment to the UN, that uh, is a petition right now. You can go online, actually, people are listening in, go to Article 31 or www.article31.org. Um, and that's all about uh, making water a basic human right. And, so, you know, also one has to sort of wonder at some point if, if maybe the right to have basic clean drinking water should be amended to the U.S. and, and other uh, national constitutions because it is actually a requirement for the proliferation of life. Yeah, and, and Uruguay is the one country so far that they um, 
they did that. They, when water was privatized, they not only kicked out the company, they amended their constitution. And that's a model that everyone's trying to use because that, that's really when I say legislative, that's what has to happen on an international level. And that's why Maud Barlow being appointed to the UN as the first water advisor there, that's very important because it's going to take a UN sort of uh, demand that countries do this uh, within their constitutions for this to have any effect. And, um, but absolutely. And, and, and then one thing I want to say though to advocates is that's not to say that water should be free because people will just waste it if it's free, but that people have access to it. Um, you know, paying water bills is, is necessary, but you know, the government should be the ones that own that and regulate it and cost should be just a factor of making sure people don't abuse it, but not, not ever for profit and never as a control factor over people. And that's what this is all about is, is the corporations there for a profit. So by nature, they're going to be raising prices and uh, trying to make more money off the situation, which is why it, it, it cannot happen that way. But um, constitutional amendments, as you say, that's the key to this all. So what do you see also for people who want to take action now, other than being aware of the issues of that the, the, there are these multinationals that are out there trying to obtain water rights and privatize uh, get access to water supplies both domestically and abroad um, and and also just the governmental and the political issues, legislative issues. What can people be doing now? I mean, should they be digging holes in their backyard to retain their water? Or, you know, I mean, you talked about the blue solution. Uh, I think the I, blue alternative. The blue alternative um, right? yeah. I would love to see the blue alternative implemented on in your house or in a town, um, you know, terracing, watching where your rainwater goes. That would be ideal if city people got involved in their cities to make sure that that was taking place. That would be ideal and a very proactive solution. I think the first step of knowledge though is a basic one and the film ends with it is um, know what watershed you live in. We don't, we don't think about you know animals, animals of all types, they go to where the water is, they live around the water hole. Um, we don't even know where our water hole is and often it's coming from 1500 miles away and we don't realize that. Um, you can go on my site, which you mentioned, um, www.bluegold-worldwaterwars.com, and under the link section, you can put in your zip code in the U.S. and find out what watershed you live in. Okay, from, from that step, you could figure out um, by one call to your water utility who owns that. If everyone did that, and, and people are aware, this is where I get my water, and this is who owns it, you'd be surprised how many are privatized, and if they are, then you can take action at a local level, you know, because it, all these fights and success stories we've heard and are in the film, they all happen from regular people. You, you, you know, it's such a global issue, it's overwhelming. But if people just looked at their water, their local water, and made sure that they are not being charged for that from a private company, then everything would be solved. If people just focus on where you live, where you get your water, and who controls that, and you can be part of a massive solution. Um, but knowledge is the key to first, and is first if we knew where the water's coming from, uh, and thought about that every day. I guarantee you, we'll start. It will start becoming part of the conscience, and we'll start becoming into the political issues uh, uh, during ballot time. Um, but farm legislation is also so huge because seventy percent of the water goes to farming, and as the film points out, a lot of areas farmers have to use all their water or they lose their rights, which is crazy. This comes from an old, old back to gold rush days when people were staking claims in water. And so they have these farmers that are wasting all their water. They know they're wasting it. They don't want to waste it, but they'll lose their rights if they don't use it all. I mean, that's how archaic our laws are right now. 
Um, so I would say if you pay attention to where your water is, find out where it's coming from, start there. Also look anytime you're voting, you know, we do have legislative laws for farming. Look at anytime you see farming issues, think of water because water and food are so linked. Uh, and that's why Food and Water Watch is the big American nonprofit in the film. Um, and they're really fighting us in D.C. on the legislative level. So I would, uh, if you do find out your, your watershed is owned privately, they would be a good person to contact to say, hey, what can I do? What have people done to make their community aware of that? What's my next step? And they can help you with that. What do we do for the farmers? You mentioned the farmers uh, earlier and uh, that they're, they're sort of in the crosshairs of this in that they're being targeted uh, both by perhaps municipalities that want to take back water or private entities or people like, you know, T. Boone Pickens, for example, mm. uh, which I won't go into that, but, you know, we, that's a famous water. story. And, yeah. And, and, you know, and then also these multinational water companies. Uh, so they're being targeted, but also they are the, the farmers who live close to the earth and understand the water issues are being forced to use the water uh, because they'll lose their water rights if they don't do that. There's a lot of that's that's very ironic. Yeah, it is. And um, you have um, mostly the agriculture, the big agriculture problems in the giant agribusinesses. So the farmer issue, one thing is we're looking at, a you know, because it's based on profit, people are growing crops where they shouldn't be growing crops, alfalfa in the desert, um, that, you know, that, that isn't water, that's using more water than it would if you grow things locally. Again, it goes back to the global economy. Really, what's going to solve the farming issue is if we, is localization, getting, you know, farms growing food for their local area instead of growing mass crops to export somewhere else. That's where we kind of see the water demand getting out of control and imbalanced with what's going on in the watershed. So again, that's going to happen through laws, though, not through any the farmers themselves, and that's why groups like Food and Water Watch that are fighting for farm bills, um, you know, we solved the farming issue. Seventy percent of the water waste is gone. That's why, you know, it's good to conserve, and we want to encourage conservation. But there are whole groups. I didn't put this in the film because it's kind of contentious, but there are whole groups that communities uh, don't encourage conservation even within the residents because. That's 10% of your water use, and if you're conserving water, you're, you're, you know, an, a company or an industry or a farm is going to end up using it anyway until the laws are in place. So the laws really have to control industrial use of water and farming use of water before anything's going to, that's why it, it's so pivotal, before there's any real change. Or else even if I conserve, a factory down the street's going to use it. So that's why this really can't hit it hard enough is a, is a legislative issue. But it can be solved with one stroke of the pen. You know, well, so people need to get active that are listening in and they need to ask yeah. these questions and they need to uh, write their Congress people and they need to, to talk about this. And, and there's, I want to point out too that the, the film is definitely not all full of, of doom and gloom for anybody who's listening in. It's got a lot of hope. There's some, the story of Ryan's Well Project. It's a, a, a student who got inspired by what a teacher said about being able to buy a well in Africa for $70 and went out and started, uh, uh, working to earn the money because his parents wouldn't give it to him to buy the well. Um, that was an amazing story. I said I'm not going to give away all the details of that because it actually goes more more into that more into it than that. But um, uh, his name's Ryan uh, Reljek, I believe is the last yes name. of Ryan's well and a bunch of other stories. The, the Bolivian people rising up and it just it, there's a lot of story uh, a lot of stories of hope in the film that, that leave you uh, hopeful but definitely more informed. So and we by this is such a comprehensive uh, topic. In 
and film that we have even in this in this two part interview. We're doing this as two parts. Uh, have not covered uh, nearly close to everything that's talked about in the film. So everyone who's listening in. I highly encourage you to watch the film, uh, buy the movie DVD, or read the book, uh, and others like it to get informed on these critical topics. So Sam, I wanted to ask you, I heard that you had some horrific and even life-threatening moments that, that happened during the shoot. Yeah, what's strange is I, I only uh, made narrative films before this, so this being my first doc, I really had no idea what I was getting into. And uh, having written scripts, it, it really occurred to me very quickly traveling that when you want to write something, you simply need to interview somebody who knows something about it, perhaps someone who had a first-hand experience. But if you want to document anything on a camera, you have to, you have to really go right to the source uh, and, and often bribe people. I think I should have a, a bribery section for my film budget because it <laughs> turned pretty crazy. I, um, well, for instance, in Mexico, in Mexico City, um, the film reveals that all of Mexico City's farm for the whole region is 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 uh, irrigated with sewage, raw sewage, and um, it's obviously something the government doesn't want people to know a lot about. So we, I had help of uh, a union worker who were activists there, um, who got us in, and there was one sympathetic guard because you have to understand in Mexico the water is so scarce in Mexico City that uh, all the water sources are mili- there's military guards and barbed wire around all the water sources. Is that right? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and, in, you know, there's a giant pipe that goes to Mexico City, um, and villagers have tried to blow it, blow it up or threatened to because they're just, you know, they, they need to go further and further away to get water, and, and that source is becoming very precious. And um, so we had to, one guard was sympathetic, so we bribed him, um, and, and the wife of the non-sympathetic guard diverted her husband for 20 minutes and I don't know how she diverted him but you can imagine and then and during that time we were told we had 20 minutes to shoot the film and I said well what you know and I had to make a choice then because I really didn't go into this thinking there'd be any danger and I said well what happens in 20 minutes if I can't shoot this and they said then you'll be floating down the river because what ends up happening is in Mexico which 60 minutes recently revealed there's a lot of what they call disappearing just there's just an enormous amount of kidnappings Right. And when they disappear somebody, where they kill you, uh, they end up throwing you in this sewage river. So the irony was, I, you know, I torn. In, in narrative films, I remember my actor, you know, getting a haircut when I didn't ask him and really freaking out about that. And now, you know, the pressure is so much different when suddenly you have 20 minutes to get five or six shots and an interview or else you're dead. And I, I just really, really, really came out from this having such a respect for photojournalists who do this every day just to get us whatever picture we see on on the internet for that day and it's amazing what they go through um uh, I was blown away but um and yeah. I just wanted to point out too that there was one of the more uh, profound and disturbing moments in the film is related to Mexico and the pollution in mm. the water where there was a uh, a US customs guard who was talking on camera and mentioning that they won't even go in the water they had the illegal aliens that were trying to cross and they were down in the water and the guards get inoculated against all these different things and that the war- water carries like something like 18 different diseases yeah, I couldn't believe that when I read it because that was actually not at Mexico City. That was very close to where I live uh, in Southern California um, on the border. And, um, you know, I read the New River was the most polluted river. And then when I called the, uh, the police there, you know, to get a permission to film there or how I would get close to the border, yeah, that's what they told, they told me. Um, 
that they will not go in after any aliens in that river, and therefore it's become a popular path for aliens to use to cross the border. And they're fully aware that if they enter this water, they're you know they're 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 in water that has hundreds of diseases, including polio. I mean, diseases we thought we wiped out. And um, if an agent falls into the water, they have like 18 shots that they'll get at a hospital. Um, and so what they end up doing is just walking along the river, which the film shows as these people float down this contaminated water. They put up a gate, and then the people run back to Mexico, but they're contaminated. Mm. Um, and then in the case of Mexico City that I mentioned, I mean, that food gets exported to America. And um, in California recently, we had a E. coli outbreak and tomatoes and jalapenos from that region. But of course, when you read it in the news, it doesn't it doesn't put it together that the reason that's happening is because... Uh, they're you know irrigating the land with raw sewage because the government doesn't want to spend the money to clean the water. What were some of the other harrowing experiences that you had in making the film? Really, the the, the only other area was Kenya, and um, in Kenya, I was at it was in Nairobi at first at the uh, World Social Forum, and, and that was fairly safe in comparison to after where I had a a, a professor who's in the film uh, from Kenya, a native, take me to his village six hours west of Kenya towards. Um, uh, Uganda, and before I went, some activists there told me to be careful because there's an enormous amount of kidnappings there of Westerners that just are reported, you know, they're so common that they're reported a little bit, but you're pretty much forgotten about. And and she was very clear on how it would happen, that I would go, uh, as, as word got out that they saw a Westerner driving, police always stop you there to bribe you um, to get by checkpoints. The word would get out, and then people would come for miles uh, to kidnap you. And um, so as we got further and further, six hours in, the checkpoints became scarier and scarier. Pretty soon, it was just like 15-year-old policemen with machine guns and a barbed wire across the fence. And at that point, I decided I was running out of money to pay these cops. So I, uh, I ducked in, my, in the car, and my guards screamed at me, and they said, you know, don't duck, don't duck, get up now. And I asked, why? Why are you, you know, why? You know, I can't afford to pay this anymore. And they said, if they see you duck, they'll assume we kidnapped you and they'll shoot everyone in the car. Wow. Including me. So they, you know, we're in a part of the world where they're more concerned with uh, maintaining the fear of the police authority than, than saving the hostage at all. So that's, you know, you're entering that just to show women walking for their water every day. And it just adds a dynamic to it that, uh, that is quite strange. But I want to add one thing in there because um, when I got to the village then and people did come, they, they had a party, they slaughtered a goat for me and people did start coming for miles around and pretty soon it got a little awkward because, you know, there's no electricity in this village, there's just lantern light and all these strange faces around me. And I never saw real desperation in, in someone's eyes before then. And I remember this guy and he came and he had walked 10 miles to see me because he heard I was there. And he told me he was, I was going to put him through college. And he was just very factual about it. There was no, he wasn't begging and he wasn't uh, requesting it in any way. And I, I really, it took a long time for me to explain, I'm doing this on credit cards, I'm not rich, I can't do this. And, um, and finally he was, just so, he was just so angry that he, you know, he left. And I thought that whole night, I put my tripod by the door because there's no locks. And I just thought, you know, they're going to come for me this night. But what really occurred to me is I, I realized in the West we really... We think uh, desperation um, makes people beg because we're used to homeless people on the streets. And I, I've started since this experience to look at homeless people as more mentally ill than 
than than really desperate um, because it occurred to me then that and what's it's a big theme in the film is that desperate people don't beg they they attack they 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 tell you they do what they have to do and they attack you survival and that, yeah and it's really that's really the big theme of the film and where I think corporations are going so wrong with putting water into the profit system because they just don't realize that people won't just grovel and take whatever price they set they'll they'll attack and they'll do whatever they have to do to get it and um, so that was, that was a profound experience in Kenya and again my, my respect for photojournalists just went up exponentially oh yeah these are people that are, are definitely as you have done risking their lives every day now I know that a, a recent guest on our program was uh, the director of a another the other water documentary that's very popular right now, Irina Selina of the film Flow, and I, I know the two of you have uh, spoken or communicated in some form. Have you had a chance to compare notes to discuss your respective experiences in filmmaking making process, specifically in regards to the, the dangers you faced? No, I, I really, really want to. Um, Irina, and there's also another one out there called One Water, and Sanjeev is the name of that director, and. and uh, One Water's been at festivals with me, but it's always on the different week, and, and Flow came a little bit before. It was last year. So I've had emails with these people, and I can't wait to meet them because I really, really, really want to sit down um, to share experiences like this because I think what makes us unique, at least, you know, is um, we went out to make a film. We're not photo. I think photojournalists know what they're getting into more, and reporters know what they're getting into more. I had no idea. If I knew what I was going to get into, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. You know? So it would be very, very interesting to... Uh, to talk to these people, the kindred spirits, you know? Well, we certainly appreciate that you did make the film. I wouldn't blame you for knowing uh, then what you know now, not having done it, but we are certainly the better for you having made the film, so we appreciate uh, that you uh, took those risks on our behalf and on everyone's behalf. Thank you, but I'm glad it's over. <laughs> I'll bet you are. Back, back to bad haircuts with actors, right? There you go. The real problems <laughs> of the world. I love IMDb because it has director trivia facts in it, and it had one right. about you, so I have to ask you about this. Oh, so, no. so it says, IMDb trivia about Sam Bazo. Caught drinking beer on the beach as a Southern California teenager. Thinking about <laughs> thinking the undercover cop was a lifeguard, Bazo lied that his name was Samuel Todd Connors. When the police phoned in and found the name did not exist, Sam was arrested. When he cleared the misdemeanor a year later, Bazo was surprised to find his police file now had a huge AKA Samuel Todd Connors on it and vowed to name a character in every script he wrote. With his new official illegal alias, <laughs> is that a true story? It, yeah, it's absolutely true. And um, and all my scripts, you know, as they hopefully will get made, they all have a Samuel Todd Connors as the main character. It's true. Uh, this is a documentary, so I couldn't fit him in, but sure. I, I probably should have put him in the credits somewhere. Yeah, no, somewhere to, floating in the background, okay. like Where's Waldo in the in the background? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> Just have him walk by with a sign. <laughs> Well, well, Sam, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for being on the program. This is such an important topic, a wonderful film, a must-see film. Uh, and I'm saying that as the guy who founded Blue Living Ideas, and I'm very focused on, on water um, for my own life and career. And uh, this is the most important film that I have seen to date, uh, very illuminating. So uh, everybody out there definitely needs to check it out. And we thank you again for being on the program with us. Thanks for bringing light to it. I really appreciate it. The website of the film is Blue Gold World Water Wars. The website is bluegold-worldwaterwars.com. And you can also check out Sam Bazo's production company at purpleturtlefilms.com. Sam Bazo is an American documentary filmmaker. He's been with us today on this two-part series. We thank everyone for listening in. And we'll see you next time on Green Talk Radio. 
Thanks as always to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.